1: Get a mentor, listen to their advice. If you can partner with them on the deal, get educated. You're going to pay for it one way or another. Your best to do it through a mentor and or a partner.
2: Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts
0: interview commercial real estate experts every day to
2: get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Neil Timmons. Neil is joining us from West Des Moines, Iowa. He is the CEO of Agent Optional, where he helps high earning realtors stabilize the commission roller coaster and become agent optional on their terms. Neil's portfolio consists of almost 100,000 square feet of industrial, 20,000 square feet of office, 15,000 square feet of retail, 23 doors, and two Airbnbs. Neil, thank you for joining us, and how are you today?
1: I'm doing terrific. I appreciate you having me on here. I'm looking forward to this.
2: It's my pleasure. Neil, if you would, give the best ever listeners a brief background about yourself and what you're focused on now.
1: Brief background. I'll be concise as I can be. Played football at University of Nebraska, Omaha. Drove by Warren Buffett's personal house every single day when I attended school there. Stumbled my way into real estate about 20 years ago. My mom got in real estate a couple years ahead of me. I was a banker at the time, and we were comparing checks. And In her first year, she made twice what I made of me working at the bank. And I thought, well, if she can do it, I can do better. I come three younger brothers, so it's a very competitive household. So Got into real estate as a realtor, hocking houses. Loved every minute of that. Bought a REMAX, became the number one REMAX agent in Iowa when I was 29 years old. And then just a couple of years after that, was faced with the situation to go, this is all I'm ever going to do. Essentially, what I'm doing isn't going to get me to where I want to go. Terrific role at generating income, but not great at generating wealth. So that led me down a different path from investing. We came through my single-family homes, fixed and flipped hundreds of them, and then stumbled in commercial real estate about six years ago, and it never looked back. So the focus is on industrial and flex properties today.
2: In the introduction, there's an elephant in the room helping high-earning realtors stabilize the commission roller coaster and become an agent optional on their terms. What the hell does that mean?
1: I heard a quote about two years ago, and somebody said the best person that you could serve as a person who you once used to be. So I thought about who did I used to be? I used to be a high income earning realtor selling houses. And what I didn't have was an outlet to place those dollars and cents, to participate in real estate without creating a second job for myself. So that's what we do. That's who our investors are. People who want passive income. They want cash flow, They know, like, and trust. Real estate as an asset class as a whole, but they do not want to deal with a tenant, a termite, or a toilet. They don't want to create another job. They're really good at what they do. The same reason that doctors and attorneys and pilots invest in real estate, but also don't create a second job for themselves. They want to be passive because they're so good at what they do. And that's what we do. We help those people create passive income so that they become agent optional on their terms.
2: Neil, we are in January of 2024. And there have been some high-profile lawsuits about agent commissions, and the courts have decided they're collusion, they're not legal, the way that the current commissions work. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think it speaks to the fact that agents absolutely need another source of income. I've read of a statistic, you probably read it as well, that the average millionaire has seven streams of income. I think this speaks to the fact that agents absolutely need to be creating alternative streams of income because their primary source of income is under attack today. And the dust has not settled and probably won't for some time. It's going to be up in the air as to know how that is going to happen, what that structure is going to look like, how disclosures and the agreements are going to have to take place, both with a listing side to earn one's commission and then the buyer broker side, which is where this whole thing came under scrutiny, if you will.
2: And not to mention their income is very cyclical as well. So very unstable.
1: Yeah, I would say it's very unstable, but I would also say for the elite, and that's who we serve, the top 10% in the industry, there's an old rule. It's an 80-20 business. It's probably like a 90-10 business in that arena. The best of the best. They don't compete against the market. They compete against other realtors. I suspect that you're going to see 2024 being really good for agents because a whole bunch of them quit in 2023. So the upper echelon of agents, I suspect they're going to do very well here this year. And interest rates have pulled back a little. I think it's going to be a very busy, very active year for those folks.
2: Neil, how long ago did you find commercial real estate?
1: About six years ago, I bought my first commercial property, 17,000 square foot industrial building. Still own it today.
2: What led you to buy that? And I'm assuming prior to that, you were all residential.
1: Yes, all residential. I was fixing and flipping houses, done a ton of those. And sooner or later, you get faced with a tax problem, going, hey, I'm really good at this, but stroking what I would categorize as a relatively large check to the government doesn't feel real good. So sooner or later, you go looking for alternatives and i just happened to have an opportunity placed in front of me from a commercial broker going i think this might be a decent deal that you should look at neil and i looked at it didn't know a lot about it i've got a finance degree so i can run numbers but all the risks and the pitfalls didn't know a lot about it so I just asked tons and tons of questions and then faced myself with the question to go is what i'm doing now going to get me to where i want to go and the answer of course was no I made a decision to go, what's the worst thing that can happen? What's the best thing that can happen? Well, the positive far outweigh the negative to move forward with it.
2: What a lot of people don't understand is when they're flipping houses, Uncle Sam is always a 30% partner.
1: They're always a partner. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, he gets his bite of that apple.
2: Yeah. Neil, 17,000 square feet of industrial. You could have started out soft, small. Why did you choose that one property?
1: What was an opportunity put in front of me? It's got a terrific tenant, long term lease. The financing at that time frame was incredible. Just checked a lot of boxes. And today is. Knowing what one now knows should have gone bigger, should have done more, should have just added another zero to the end, if you will, because if you're going to do a commercial transaction of any size, whether it's 17,000 square feet or 100,000 square feet, the workload is almost identical. So you might as well just go bigger and add in. There's additional safety measures actually when it gets a little larger.
2: Neil, do you remember what the cash on cash return was at inception when you purchased that property?
1: Just north of 7%, like seven and a half.
2: Okay. And I'm assuming this was a triple net tenant. Correct. And you realize it's essentially as close as you can get to mailbox money, being an active investor. Was that a pivotal moment where you wanted more of this and stopped dealing with the tenants and the termites and the toilets?
1: Yeah, like two months goes by and I'm sitting here at my desk thinking I never get a phone call from these people and I'm the property manager of this thing. I'm going, that never happens in the single family space or or at dozens of rentals, never. And so I'm going, this is a light bulb moment to go, there has to be an ability to do more of this.
2: And you found this new world. I'm assuming you dove headfirst in finding more industrial or just more commercial properties in general?
1: More commercial properties in general. Yeah, the next one after that was a retail building about 10,000 square feet with 11 tenants and went full circle on that in about two and a half years Did just dynamite. And you're right, all in headfirst into multiple asset classes here in my backyard and then ultimately pivoted to just focus on industrial flex.
2: Can we dive into the retail property? 10,000 square feet, 11 tenants. I'm assuming mom and pop tenants at inception.
1: There was a Dairy Queen, and there was a Subway, and then the rest were all mom-and-pop tenants.
2: Do you remember the purchase price?
1: 817000
2: To be exact. And what was the cash-on-cash cash return for this property?
1: Cash-on-cash cash there was north of 10%. We bought it at a nine to nine-and-a-half cap, 10% did a seller-financed situation, 10% down. Ultimately refinance it out with bank debt. 90 to 120 days after purchase, still only 10% down at that time.
2: Was there any vacancy?
1: No vacancy, zero. There was, so you're going down the path of where do we add value on this one? We added value from a lease enforcement standpoint. The leases just were not being enforced, meaning it was a triple net deal. And what had taken place is that CAM had grown so substantially over a period of time that the previous landlord was just eating it. They were not passing back through full CAM expenses to the tenant level. So CAM, if anybody doesn't know, common area maintenance. So things like taxes and insurance, mowing the yard, taking care of the snow, the dumpster, all this common area stuff. And the landlord was just eating these expenses. So we just turned around and passed it all back to enforce the lease. This is what was agreed to. And this is what you're now paying for this. So we got a little pushback, managed our way through it, and then came through, this was during COVID too, that we actually survived all the way through COVID.
2: Was it your responsibility to have those tough conversations with the tenants?
1: I hired a third-party property manager for this one. So they ended up having those conversations with the tenants.
2: And how far back were you able to get back, Kim? Or did you just draw a line in the sand and just going forward?
1: Yeah. Just drawing a line. As soon as we took ownership, we just drew the line in the sand and go, here's the new number moving forward. And everything that you agreed to in the lease is now what you're going to actually pay.
2: Yeah. And for the best ever listeners, this is a great way to find mismarketed or mismanaged opportunities where in the lease, it could be a triple net lease, but the owner had a handshake deal with everybody. He's friends with all the tenants and CAM had never been enforced. So These deals are out there. What a great way to add value. Do you still own this property today?
1: No, went full cycle on that about two and a half or three years full cycle, start to finish on that one.
2: Was there much tenant turnover?
1: There was zero tenant turnover, literally just an enforcement of the leases. And that's it. I think we may have had a negotiation to bump one person on a renewal and that was it. So I know we're going on this. 817 on the purchase price, 1535 on the sale price. Two and a half years later.
2: Amazing. That's a huge home run for a retail deal. Why do you not do more retail? Why do you focus solely on industrial?
1: We're opportunistic when it comes to what's in my backyard here in Des Moines, Iowa. But when it goes to leaving Iowa, looking through the Midwest, it is to become a little more hands off in the sense of our ability to execute a business plan and execute at the management level. We've just found greater success level, inside the industrial and flex asset versus the retail asset, which of the town of deal I just described to you, it's certainly a home run. It didn't take tremendous heavy lifting, but those are diamonds in the rough that I know you do so well. So you really have to be looking for those. We've just chosen the asset of, of industrial flex. Just really like the very long-term prospects. And I like retaining things for cash flow. like getting somebody in there. like the idea of fewer tenants, longer-term leases. So really like this, the five and the 10 plus year lease terms on the industrial side that lends itself to versus a mom and pop retail, if you will.
2: Do you hold the assets for that long or do you turn and burn these things?
1: Really like to hold them for an extended period of time. The intent of becoming agent optional for folks and serving our clientele, serving the folks who invest with us is to create passive cash flow. There's an old saying that retirement's a number, but it's not an age. It's a cash flow number. So the intent for us is to build up and to create those investment opportunities that become truly passive and passive income for people to allow them to become job optional, agent optional on their terms.
2: Neil, before we deep dive into industrial, I want to touch on your office assets, 20,000 square feet of office. Do you still own that?
1: Still own it. Yes.
2: Was that an investment or an owner user type deal?
1: We have two standalone buildings and then we have single tenant buildings, which are occupied. And then we have a ten unit office condo, which I'm in one of the ten suites. That's where I actually where I, where I sit today. So I bought that. Really the intent is an investment, whether I was here or not, didn't make a make a big difference. Purchased it about eighteen months ago with sixty percent vacancy. Today we're eighty percent occupied in eighteen months. Did some physical rehab to the property. We're just working on a refinance to add a little second mortgage to it to recapture some more dollars and cents that we put physically into the property. But we just had it appraised, I want to say it's 61, 62% higher than what we purchased it for 18 months ago.
2: And because office is so beaten up, I'm assuming that you got this at a huge discount.
1: We think so, yeah, $49 a square foot. What I classify as a B minus property.
2: And is it just a neighborhood office space where people that live close by want to not commute far for their office?
1: Yeah, we're in Des Moines, so there isn't much of a commute anyway. The old say is 20 minutes you can get about anywhere here. I think there's a segment of the office population. You're right. It's a beat-up asset class. We have 1,000 square feet, plus or minus, on these type condo spaces. There's still a demand for it. You still have people with small businesses. We have insurance agents. We have doctors, chiropractor, accountant, beauty supply, mental health. We just have people with a need for this who are never going to do this. They're not going to operate on Zoom, not from a full-time standpoint. They just have a physical need for an office, and it's two to five-person type businesses So there's still a demand for it. That's really who we're serving. And yes, to your point, geographically speaking, they're all relatively close to the location.
2: So you're opportunistic. If you find a great deal, commercial, you'll take it down. But you've got a focus on industrial and flex. Are you buying, building, both?
1: We're just buying, yeah. We're not doing any building.
2: How are you finding deals and what's your buy box?
1: We're finding deals two different ways. The primary one is connecting with brokers, building relationships with folks in markets we want to be in. So we've identified multiple markets through the Midwest and then connecting with people, sharing what it is that we're doing, see if we're aligned and really vetting deals opportunities that way from folks. So the buy box, there's two sides of our portfolio I say we buy for. One's our value add side of the portfolio. So a value add component, something we can realize in the next five years, whether it's mark to market on leases, something that's multiple tenants that modify gross lease where we can morph over to triple net leases, things with excess ground. We bought a piece earlier this year with two buildable lots. We think we can monetize that over a period of time or vacancy. We'll buy up to 50% vacant today, 30 to 80,000 square feet.
2: Got it. Can it be in disrepair or do you want it turnkey? Oh,
1: well, it can be in disrepair. We're evaluating the deal right now which the repair budget is going to be equal to that of the purchase price so a million dollar purchase price million dollar repair so we'll certainly evaluate something like that We've, we can buy it correctly and budget it correctly
2: Neil on the industrial do you prefer single tenant or multi-tenant
1: really like the single tenant a lot the butt of that is it's challenging to find a value-add deal in a single tenant situation so you're somehow nearing the end of a lease term and maybe they don't have any renewals to where you're going to rework that lease or you're going to churn them. They're not at market. You're going to turn them out and then find somebody to backfill that space, to bring somebody to market. But we have both in the portfolio. We buy both. My love is fewer moving pieces, Hush. fewer tenants and longer-term leases. The fewer the moving pieces, the better. It's easier for us to scale and manage.
2: Otherwise, you might as well buy apartments. <laughs>
1: yeah. Correct.
2: So 30000 is roughly your minimum. Does that mean you don't buy the hottest thing out there? Are those 1,500-square-foot flex buildings where there's 10 of them?
1: Where there's 10 of them combined, all in one. We did buy a smaller one that came in a package-type deal. We bought a 12,000-square-foot building earlier this year. I say building. It's four buildings, 3,000 square feet apiece. So I don't know who would have constructed this because it's not the most efficient construction. But it's a flex flex. About 40 to 50 percent is office. The balance is on the warehouse side of things. And we bought it totally, completely vacant. In fact, funny story. We bought this from a billionaire. This is an off market deal. We bought from a broker. We built a relationship with a billionaire. Bought this about five years ago or so. She was constructing a house, which is going to take a year or two years to complete the construction of her house mansion, of course. And she needed storage space for all her personal items. So this is a wealthy person problem, right? So instead of doing whatever you or I might do, she bought 12,000 square feet of space, stored her items. They're totally vacant. When she was done, moved her items and sold the building completely vacant. Never once has it been occupied in five years.
0: Interesting. <laughs> it's a tough problem to have. Yeah. We'll get back to the show. with First, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you looking to raise money from private investors to buy commercial real estate? Syndicationattorneys.com is here to guide you every step of the way. At syndicationattorneys.com, they do more so you can do more. They create real estate syndication and fund offering documents, but they also educate you on the ins and outs of raising private money ensure your offerings comply with security laws and help you structure fair deals with investors so everybody wins. With reasonable lump sum fees and over $2.75 billion in security offerings created, syndicationattorneys.com has the expertise you need. But that's not all. Syndicationattorneys.com also offers weekly attorney-led masterminds, networking, and strategy sessions through their pre-syndication consulting agreements. To learn more, visit syndicationattorneys.com today to get started. And this offer is not available to Florida residents.
2: Just out of curiosity, you are in the brokerage business. Do you look for off-market deals or is that a no-no? Is that anti-broker?
1: No, we almost exclusively buy off-market. I can't think of the last one. It's probably been a few years since we purchased anything that was on-market. And that speaks to some of that is the nature of the environment that certainly 23 represented. Just fewer deals and those who controlled the deals, oftentimes they had enough buyers in their Rolodex that they didn't need to take it to market. They just called their best people. They know who will close. They know who will pay a fair price. And they put a deal together.
2: Neil, when did you start raising capital for your deals?
1: Last year was the first year we'd ever took a dollar in. Otherwise, it was just me funding the deals as we went. What prompted that decision? The decision is that we knew, based on the skills that we have, our ability to grow, we knew something would have to change. It was only so many dollars in the couch. And so we knew that would have to change. And then it became, okay, we know we've got something special, our ability to help others, as it's been here in our office. It's who can we go focus on and help? So knowing that I was a churn to my brethren in the real estate agent community to be able to do that. And at the same time, identify a problem in the environment, a unique challenge that they have, their ability to want to create passive income, want to create their cash flow, but also at the same time not create a second job, not become that full time investor.
2: Are you opposed to buying a five to ten thousand square foot flex building?
1: Am I opposed to buying it? No. It does become a little more challenging. Next question would be, where is it? It becomes a little more challenging to go, how are we going to put that thing together? The unique piece, and you've experienced this, I think, in raising capital, when you go to raise capital, you have a couple of things. You have fixed costs. Call it a churning line item. It's $15,000, plus or minus. Whether you go to raise, buy 10,000-square-foot flex building or a 100,000-square-foot flex building, the cost is the same. there's a few other line items where the cost is about the same. So the challenge is at some threshold, you're going at that small of square footage, really needs to be a killer deal in order for it to pencil out to get very attractive to an investor and for us to get those numbers to justify for folks.
2: Yeah. Another reason I asked that question is that's the target that a lot of people are chasing right now. Those small flex buildings that have a low barrier to entry. So I didn't know if you were avoiding those to escape competition, but the other reasons that you mentioned are certainly evidence of why you're doing what you're doing. How did you go about raising capital for the first time? Because you've done deals yourself for all these years, and now all of a sudden, you're going to turn into a capital raiser.
1: Yep. Friends and family, and then referrals to my real estate agent network.
2: Sounds pretty simple. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's where one starts and then it becomes who do we connect with and then having understanding. Part of that is I've just drawn a line down the piece of paper to go, capital raising and doing deals, they're both very important. They're two totally different things. In fact, they're two totally different businesses. So, you know, occasionally get questions like, Hey, you haven't raised capital before? Like I'm not sure. I'm like, Well, we haven't raised capital before, but don't judge me on my ability to raise capital. Judge me on my ability to succeed at the thing you're actually putting money in, the actual real estate deals. And we've got a track record of literally hundreds of millions of dollars that I've been involved in. Lots of projects over the years where we've just done my own self and we've we've come full cycle on these things and I still have a bunch in the portfolio about how to to, to be able to do it today.
2: Neil, everyone wants to raise capital from doctors, lawyers, entrepreneurs, business owners. You have targeted real estate professionals, real estate brokers, agents. What's unique about that? Is there a different level of education? Do they have mental barriers? Help us understand that.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. One of the biggest things is a number of people want to go do it themselves. They want to be active, and that's terrific. For those who want to be active, we're probably not the best solution. It's truly for us. It's finding those people who have an interest, they want to participate, they want to do it from a passive standpoint. The same reason you don't see doctors just all of a sudden becoming a real estate investor, they don't quit their profession. They're really good at doing what they do. They went to school for it, they train for it, and they make a killing doing it. Well so of be elite realtors selling homes, serving their communities. They do the exact same thing. They have built a network over the years that you can't transfer to somebody else. Nobody's going to come and step in your shoes. Those relationships are non-transferable, if you will, and they're exceptional at what they do. So for those folks, yes, it's somewhat it's educating them on what we do. Biggest education is why industrial? Because industrial is one of those asset classes that red-headed stepchild, that one you don't think about, the one you drive by in the middle of a city, and it's not even a thought, not even on the radar. So there is some education that takes place there about that asset class, about what that means, about who even occupies these types of properties. Because so many of us, when we start educating people, they're like, oh, I actually get it. All these things show up from Amazon that largely end up in a warehouse someplace. There's lots of people, lots of users, tremendous amount of square feet is in demand and there's a lot of things from a macro trend standpoint a bunch of reshoring taking place things moving back to united states away from china away from mexico coming back home if you will and there's just a lot of demand and things headed in the right direction from a macro standpoint that makes it an attractive asset class
2: with industrial are there times where you have something so special purpose for example with retail if somebody has a salon And tenant leaves, you really want another salon going in there. Otherwise, you're doing a big build out. With industrial, do you run into that, or are the spaces versatile enough where the next tenant just needs the four walls?
1: You can, yes, and we try to avoid those. The old adage is you marry that building, but you date that tenant. And so I want to know what it is that we're marrying. And if something is so uniquely constructed, to their specific use, it's a deal we typically would pass on. I've seen that multiple times where you've got a big manufacturer here in the Midwest and they had, whatever, 50,000 square feet, and then they grew, and so they added another 25,000 square feet on, and now it's a weird shape on the corner of the building, and then they did it again for another 25,000. And you're going, I have no idea who's ever going to go into this space if, should they ever leave. That's the type of deal we just we would not participate in.
2: And then how strongly do you underwrite the tenants? Because really, you're often buying a stream of income. You're buying the credit of this tenant in their guarantee. Do you look for personal guarantees, corporate guarantees? Do you get to see the financials of the business?
1: It depends on the tenant. So we have some tenants that we have inside of our buildings that are publicly traded. So that becomes relatively easy to go off and understand what that is. We have other tenants that are strong regional. And so we are asking for, yes, financials. In some cases, we're asking for personal guarantees.
0: And then we have other tenants
1: who are local, and those always are getting personal guarantees. And oftentimes, we are not getting financials on those. They typically end up in much shorter terms. (laughs) They don't have them. You got it. Sometimes we'll get a tax return, but, yeah, they don't have a lot. And you're talking about typically smaller footprints in those scenarios. They'd be a perfect candidate for a flex building of 3,000 square feet. You're getting three to five years in lease terms, somewhere in that range, They're on the shorter end, but your bigger, longer term stuff. We're negotiating right now a seven-year new lease on a building, seven-year deal on the initial and two five-year options on the back side of that. Strong local credit tenant, which we're getting financials and a personal guarantee stock on top of that.
2: And in the crazy inflationary time that we're in, do you do annual rent increases?
1: Yeah, let's just talk about the deal that we're doing now, the seven-year deal. Depending on what geographic environment you're in, you're going to be somewhere between 2% and 4% on annual increases on that rent.
2: In the back of your mind, do you always think about how hard it would be to re-tenant this space if your current tenant leaves?
1: Yes, it's always a part of the analysis when you go into the building. All right, if they leave, how hard is it going to be? How long is it going to take? That also becomes a component of our lease. So, how long is it going to take? We're striving for six month notices inside of our leases. Most tenants only want to give you 90 day notice to go, yes, we're going to exercise our option to renew or we're giving you notice to vacate. I want six months on everything. So, the marketing plan can start right away. So at least I've got a six month window of income stream coming in while I'm marketing that property in order to reduce what's that vacancy load going to look like.
2: Finding tenants for 50, 60,000 square feet industrial buildings. How do you go about doing that?
1: Do a really good job at interviewing brokers. There's brokers. That's all they do. Just like on the retail side or whatever your specialty may be. That's all they do is fill space from 5,000, to 50,000 or 100,000 square feet. So get really good at understanding who that specialist is in the marketplace. That's what going higher.
2: Is there characteristics of a great hungry broker? Do you find somebody new and young, somebody who's older, well-connected? What have you had the best luck with?
1: The best luck on our industrial side, typically somebody who has some level, they're seasoned, depends on what it is. So let me give you an example. The property I gave you, the flex property, that's four buildings, 3,000 square feet apiece. These are going to be generally local credit. Some, we ended up with a couple of regional credit folks. Really strong communicators what I'm looking for. So somebody who's connected, somebody who can communicate and just get along with folks and understanding where they're going to fit in the environment. If it's 50,000 square feet, it's going to be more corporate, It's going to be somebody with deep level of patience because things are going to take some time and somebody who has been there, done that. Somebody who's well-connected and just can see all the way through the corporate side of things. But I'm convinced somebody strong who can communicate, set expectations, manage expectations, clearly communicate. Those have been the strongest folks all the way through.
2: As I'm asking that question, I thought back to some industrial brokers that I've used and one of the best that I've used was an older person who was retiring who brought on somebody new. So you've got this hungry young guy, but you've got all the wisdom of the older person, and they were a phenomenal team. You've mentioned a few times you want to buy things in your backyard. Why do you not look far away from Des Moines?
1: Inside of Des Moines, I'm opportunistic. I'd buy just about any class as it sits here because our ability to execute is very high. Relative to construction, management, in just about any asset class. As soon as we cross the border, it's industrial or flex. It's really through the Midwest. About Arkansas, it's a little stretch to call it the Midwest. I have a sales guy who lives in Arkansas, so we buy in Arkansas. That's about as far south as we go. And otherwise, we're just on all the states that touch Iowa.
2: Okay, sorry. I assume that you're only looking for industrial in Des Moines, but you're far reaching on that. What do you look for in terms of metrics, population growth, household income, access to rail, rivers, lakes, interstates?
1: Five mile radius, 100,000 in the population. From there, we're looking at what's our population growth. I want to see an upward trajectory in population. And then in the economic side, most of the major cities, they're diverse enough. The population's large enough, whether it's, call it, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or Omaha, Nebraska, or Sioux Falls. The job-wise has been diverse enough to be satisfactory. We have not yet acquired anything in such a small community where it's been too tight. What would I be paying attention to in a place that is exactly 100,000 people in the five-mile radius? I'd be paying attention to. There's an overwhelming, huge number of the population work for one employer. That would scare me. So I'm looking for diversity in the employment.
2: What about proximity to interstates?
1: It's important, but it hasn't become a hard and fast to say, well, this is the box that you check to go, yes, it's a potential opportunity or no, it's not. What we do is once we get an opportunity it's to look inside here and then the competition in the immediate surrounding vicinity to go, well, what's our lease rate look like? How long is it taking to lease? What's our vacancy level look like in the immediate competition? No doubt it'd be preferred to be right next to an interstate, but you may find some things that are off the interstate where there's still a concentration of multiple industrial properties where there's still a constant demand for what's there. I'd hate to be not near an interstate and be the only industrial building where I happen to be situated. I'd rather be in a park of some nature where you're going. Yeah, this is an industrial park. People are always going to want to be here for this type of use.
2: Industrial's been on fire for a number of years now. Do you see any headwinds on the horizon?
1: The biggest thing is on the macro level is what is the economy as a whole do. If the economy as a whole continues to slow as it has been with the increase in rates over 2023, you'll just see, as we saw in 23, longer timelines to fill vacant space. There'll be increased vacancies, so not as much demand for square footage. Those are the two biggest challenges from a macro standpoint. Alternatively, this applies across all of commercial assets is what is going to happen to interest rates? Most of the commercial loans are done on five-year fixed rate notes. And so as that five-year note is up and you roll off what was a 35 or 3 or 4% interest rate, and now you're going to go back on at 7 or 8%, there's a number of people, if they juiced the thing too up, meaning they borrowed at a high leverage factor, they're going to have a challenge because their income did not grow to meet their new debt or of an interest rate that has now doubled. And so you're going to see some distress inside of all commercial asset classes, if interest rates hold.
2: Neil, what is your best real estate investing advice ever?
1: Get a mentor early. Get a mentor, listen to their advice. If you can partner with them on the deal, get educated. You're gonna pay for it one way or another. Your best to do it through a mentor and or a partner to add value to what they do. And in in return, you'll get more value added to you than you could ever conceive of.
2: Neil, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? I'm ready. All right. What's the best ever book you recently read?
1: Winning Through Intimidation. Robert Ringer wrote it. Winning Through, not by. Winning Through Intimidation. The book's about 40 years old, maybe 50 years old. What an incredible book.
2: What was your big takeaway from that?
1: The big takeaway is that positioning matters. He also has something, I think he called it as leapfrog theory. The ability to say... I'm going to do single-family homes, and then after single-family homes, I'll do a duplex, and then I'll do a fourplex, and then maybe I'll get to a 16, and then a 24. And he's like, no, you don't have to do that. You can literally leapfrog. You can go from one house to a 40 unit. You can go from one 8,000 square feet to 80,000 square feet. You can leapfrog over it. It's all in your mind.
2: Neil, what's the best ever way you like to give back?
1: The best ever way I like to give back is by helping mentor people, and that often means still go to meetups, still do a whole bunch of local things, both on the commercial side, but on the house side, connecting with investors who touch a wide range of assets and just connecting with people. Because oftentimes, what do I get out of it is a referral, but there's a personal satisfaction to be able to help somebody, to be able to be that person that somebody once was to me, to be able to pay it forward, if you will.
2: Neil, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you?
1: Best place to find me, agentoptional.com.
2: Neil, thank you for your time today. I feel like we've covered so many different topics, your history, your background, driving by Buffett's house and your entry into commercial real estate and what you've done since then And such a unique approach in targeting, helping other real estate professionals. So thank you for your time today.
1: It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me.